let's pray one more time for the word. And then we're going, we're going to start in Ecclesiastes today. But Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you, God, for this intimate moment that we can have with you through prayer. You've even declared that your house will be a house of prayer. So we, we realize that we can never pray too much when we're in a, in a church service. We can never pray too much when we're in our personal life, God, because that intimate communion with you, that's what you desire and that's what we desire. We want to have a relationship with you, Jesus, and we know that's what you desire with humankind as well. Lord, I pray that if anybody feels like they're living in chaos right now, I pray that you would speak peace because that's your answer to chaos. Lord, speak peace in this house today and help us to look to you no matter what's going on in life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, uh, the title that I have for you today is The Cure to Chaos. And we're going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read it in the New King James Version. I returned and saw under the sun that... The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. That's not a very happy couple scriptures. But we'll talk about it today because there is a cure to chaos. And many times in our regular life, we feel like that's just what we live in. There's so much out of our control, out of humanity's control. But God has given us the cure to that life. And we're going to talk about that today. Ecclesiastes is an interesting book in the Bible. It's one, uh, it's not all that fun to read, to be honest. Um, and, and there's a man who wrote this book. Most people uh, believe that, he it, that it was Solomon who wrote this book because the way he identifies himself, he identifies, uh, he calls himself the preacher as he's writing. He never identifies as Solomon, just as the preacher. But he, he does say that he was a king of Israel. He does say that he was a son of David. And he references the wisdom that he has. And he references the accomplishments that he did and the things that he built and the wealth that he accumulated and built for himself and the many wives that he had. So many people believe that, that this is the writing of Solomon because so much of what he references lines up to what we read about uh, when we do read about Solomon in, you know, first Kings and so on and so forth. But when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you quickly realize that whoever wrote this book, and for our, for our sake today, we'll just assume it's Solomon. You can easily realize that Solomon has become a very jaded individual, that he is hurt and realizes that there's a lot of stuff in life that doesn't really matter. And keep in mind, when you read that through the perspective that this is Solomon, you look at all that he had. Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. Solomon had everything he could ever want, all of the wealth, all the power. He built palaces. He built, literally expanded the kingdom of Israel uh, off of the foundation that his father David laid. He had everything he could ever want. And yet, when you read Ecclesiastes, this man writes things like this. This is Ecclesiastes 1, 8, and 9. Media team, y'all don't have to get this one. I'm just going to read it quick. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. 
that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. You also see Ecclesiastes 2 and 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and the labor in which I toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. This person lived a life of excess. He lived with everything he could ever want. And now, at this point, when he's writing Ecclesiastes, most believe this is the last thing that Solomon wrote. I don't know how old he was or anything like that, but this is so starkly different from the book of Proverbs that we read Solomon dispensing wisdom. Now we see a man who lived his life, who had done everything he ever wanted to do, and he's reflecting back on it and thinking about all of the things, all the check marks that he did on his to-do list and realizes that it didn't really matter, all of it. He says he looked at all of the things his hands did and realized that it was vanity and grasping for straws. And he seems uh, to have some regrets in life. All of the things that he accumulated didn't mean anything to him at this point. And one of the main things that the preacher points out is how empty and chaotic life is. That's one of the core themes that you can trace through the book of Ecclesiastes. He uses the word vanity 34 times in this book. And vanity, uh, it, the uh, Hebrew is very similar to the way we use it. Well, not quite similar. Vanity in Hebrew, the way that he meant to use it, just means emptiness. It's a, it comes from a root word which means vapor. The same root word that talks about how man's life is a breath and a vapor. It's here one day and gone the next. That there's really no substance in what Solomon is talking about here. And he, he realizes although he had everything, everything that he had was empty. There was nothing to sustain his soul. But in addition to that, he points out that life is very chaotic and unpredictable. The scripture that we opened with, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, talk about where Solomon, throughout his life, reflecting, realizes that there are good things and bad things that happen to everybody. That's why he says that it's no guarantee that you'll win the race even if you're swift. There's no guarantee that you're going to win the battle even though you're strong. There's no guarantee that you're going to get bread even though you have knowledge and wisdom. What he's saying is that life is utterly chaotic and there is good things and bad things happen to everybody. And in reality, there's a lot of things that we cannot do and a lot of things we cannot control. And sometimes bad stuff just happens. And that's what Solomon is, the point that he's getting across in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Chaos in and of itself just means the state of utter confusion. Have you ever asked yourself, why on earth did this happen? That is a question that you ask when you're presented with a chaotic life. Why did this happen? There's no explanation. Why did all these bad things happen? Why did the person who takes care of their health and, and, takes, and exercises, why did they get a terminal illness? Why did something bad happen to a good person? And I'll tell you this, that life is chaotic. It's confusing, and there's a lot of things in this world that we cannot control. Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, this is where we find the fall of man. And what we learn in Genesis chapter 3 is that these curses were dispensed because of sin. It was the sin of disobedience which escorted chaos into the world. Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, in the Amplified, they say this, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing how to distinguish between good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life as well and eat uh, and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent Adam away from the Garden of Eden to till and cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So now, all of a sudden, paradise had shattered into a million pieces because of the sin that crept into human heart. That sin of disobedience required God to banish man from the paradise that God had created. 
because God is perfect and now all of a sudden there's fault in humanity, his perfection, we talked about his holiness this morning in spirit life, and, and because God is holy and perfect, in this case, there was no way that he could mix with humanity the way he did before Adam and Eve had sinned. So they had to be taken out of the Garden of Eden. And what we see after this event is a slow decline in the world at large. Through that one sin, paradise was shattered and a curse was set on humanity. And now humans could no longer live forever in perfect health and peace. And in the next chapter of Genesis, we see this go even further with murder, hatred, and jealousy, the story of Cain and Abel. And then you get to Genesis chapter 6. And God shows us the state of the world right before he chooses to flood it in the story of Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, in the Amplified. The Lord saw that the wickedness, the depravity, is a great way to translate that word. The depravity of man was great on earth and that every imagination or intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That this sin started to generate, uh, or I, I wouldn't even say generate, this sin degenerated humanity. Uh, men and women following after this uh, darkness that had crept into their heart created an environment on the earth where there was only evil continually. There was chaos. There was uh, sin and manipulations happening. There was murder. And actually, if you read in Genesis chapter 6 and you study a lot of the Hebrew and the way that it was written and you start reading that weird, uh, the weird story about the Nephilim and all this, like what, what they're, the Nephilim translated to and what they represented in history were these kings that were great and just filled the, their fields with blood, that that was the state of humankind. <laughs> In Genesis chapter 6, it wasn't great. And humans, this is what we see, is that when humans are free to choose their own will, humans lean towards darkness. And when you live in darkness, you live in chaos. Because what darkness and sin produces is utter confusion. It's it, it creates a world where you can't even understand why these things are happening. And it's hard to point back to certain actions and individuals. And this is why, you know, all of these bad things are happening. No, it's really sin that created uh, all of the bad things that we see in life. Sicknesses. It's uh, sin that created the difficulties that we have in relationships. And everything that, that can destroy humanity is traced all the way back to the fall of man. And now we live in a chaotic world and life is not fair and it's confusing and there seems to be no real reason why things happen and bad things happen to everyone. And this is the kind of perspective that we read in Ecclesiastes. This is the lens that Solomon is writing the whole book through. That all of the stuff that he did doesn't really matter, but what he does know is that good and bad happens to everybody. No matter what state of life you're in, Someone perfectly healthy can get a terminal illness. Somebody who has a steady financial position can suddenly be laid off. Like it, th These things happen, and it's because we live in a fallen world. And all of these things don't make sense to us. So most people, their entire life, live a life of utter chaos. I think of specifically one person that's in my life right now that I believe God has put in my life to teach me some things and for me to minister to. But this individual, there's always something going on. There's always an issue. There's always a family problem. There's always, you know, a, a financial issue. There's always something. And what I've realized after, you know, befriending this person that this is how a lot of people live. They live from problem to problem, issue to issue. That a lot of times there's no great outlook on life for people. That they're just living not just paycheck to paycheck, but problem to problem. And what I've realized is that the majority of people live this way. And honestly, without God, 
that is one of the only ways that humans can operate, is in chaos, in darkness, in confusion. And I, I've been reading a book by uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson that I really like. The book is called The Twelve Rules of Life. And this is what he says about chaos. He's a clinical psychologist, and he's been working with clients for many years, 20, 30 years. And he says that what he realizes is that people that live in chaos can allow chaos to swamp them so they drown. We need order and rules in our life. That's, that, was, that was his perspective. We need order and rules because chaos can swamp people and drown people. I mean, that's not a great way to live, never knowing which way you go, never knowing what the next problem is that's coming down the road, never knowing uh, if you're going to keep your job or lose it, never knowing if you're going to keep your health or lose it. That's not a great way to live. And actually living that way, living that way, psychology shows us, and actually Dr. Jordan B. Peterson is one who studies this in depth, living that way generates uh, anxiety and depression in somebody's life. And when somebody lives with anxiety and depression, it shortens their lifespan and it lowers the immune system so that you get sick more often and the sicknesses are more severe. And it prevents you from stepping out and taking risks that could benefit your life. He actually laid out this study. I promise I have a lot of scripture. Just give me a second, okay? He laid out this study about lobsters. Have you ever heard this study about lobsters? <laughs> I heard somebody talk about this one time. I think it was in church. And the title of the message was, Hold Your Head Up High Like a Lobster. Because, so he references this, uh, <laughs> this study. And lobsters, I don't know, I know nothing about lobsters. I know we got a lobster fisherman in the house today. <laughs> but I, I, that's all I know about lobsters is that they're delicious. But... Lobsters are very territorial. I didn't know this, but they are. They, they fight for the best hunting grounds, although they're mainly scavengers. But they fight for the best shelters. They fight for all this. And uh, when they go at it, there's like four levels to their confrontation. I didn't realize lobsters were so sophisticated. But first off, they kind of they square up to each other, and they try to make themselves look big. And usually the bigger of the two lobsters will scare off the smaller one, and then the big lobster has asserted his dominance, and now he rules that area. But if that doesn't happen, then they get to showing off their claws, and they start snapping claws at each other. And if that doesn't scare off the lesser one, then they start to get physical, almost like pushing. They don't pinch, but they start pushing each other back and forth, and if that doesn't scare off the smaller one, then it gets to the fourth level, and this is where it gets bad for the lobsters. They actually start to fight with their pinchers, and they try to rip off each other's legs. They really try to flip over the other one on its back. It's crazy. But what scientists and psychologists have done is in studying these lobsters, they've tested their neurochemistry, and the lobsters that win the most battles tend to have higher serotonin levels, in their brain, which you might be familiar with serotonin. It's a neurochemical that helps you feel more confident. Uh, it helps you feel more happy is kind of a loose term. It doesn't really do that, but it helps you feel more confident. It helps you feel less risk averse, so you're more willing to take risks. And then they found that these lobsters that lose have lower levels of serotonin and higher levels of this other chemical that I cannot pronounce, so I'm not going to try to. But that chemical when it's in higher levels, is the same chemical in humans' brains that when you have been defeated over and over again, there's higher levels of this chemical that make the lobster shrink back and hide and try to avoid confrontation at all costs. And usually those lobsters are the ones that don't survive because they're not able to take a step. They're not able to, to put themselves out there to battle for these new hunting grounds. They're not able to because of this neurochemical. It's the same thing in humans, that when you have experienced victory in your life, it's easy to take that next step because your mindset is already 
like I can do this. I feel good. I can, you know, I can make this happen. But when you have been defeated over and over and over and over again, the question becomes, how do you snap out of that mindset? For most people, and this is what Dr. Jordan B. Peterson uh, talked about in his clinical psychology studies, for most people, it is impossible to break that cycle. And I can tell you, from our perspective, it is not impossible to break that cycle. It is not impossible to come back from a defeat. It is not impossible to get back up again. Psychology also shows us that, peop- that children who grow up in stable homes tend to do better in school. They have less behavior problems. They tend to be more successful because of order, because of order, structure. When you live a chaotic life, like I said, it breeds stress and anxiety, which leads to shorter lifespans and multiple health problems. And this is what we'll say. We'll bring it back to the spiritual, okay? Sin, which created a chaotic world, ultimately leads to death. We all know this, right? Sin leads to death. But the life in living in sin is not one of pleasure and one of order. It's one of chaos. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right. There's a way that in our fleshly thinking, that's the path to success. But ultimately, the way that we think is right as humans, like what Solomon pointed out, you get to the end of that road and look back and say, it's not really worth it. I got nothing out of that. And ultimately, it leads to death. But not just physical death. See, this is the amazing thing about Scripture is that when you study the way that Hebrews used these words, the way that Jewish speakers wrote these words, they use death a lot in the Old Testament. Specifically, Solomon does in Proverbs. You see the path of death or the path of destruction over and over and over again in in Proverbs. However, it's not just talking about physical death. We do know that sin leads to death, that because there's sin in the world, everybody's got to die. But this death that it's talking about is also a spiritual death, that when you start walking the path of this world, your spirit starts to die. When you're not walking the path that God has intended us to walk, our spirit dies Consider this. I know this is a silly analogy, but consider this. Do you know what happens to whales if they don't come up for air? A lot of people say they drown. I'm going to just give you a little minor technicality. They suffocate. They don't have that reflex that we have where you inhale if you've held your breath long. But they suffocate. They die. And that's what it's like living in the world and not being connected to the source of life. When you live in the world and you never come up for air and never... Uh, come up to connect with Jesus and never try to connect with the upstairs, then you will suffocate. That's what happens to our spirit. This chaotic life is not conducive to living a spiritual life. That's why we have to talk about the cure to chaos because chaos is going to happen, but God has laid out a process for us to mitigate the effects that chaos has in our spirit. Jesus even said this when talking about the condition of mankind when you don't live for God. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 27, in the Amplified, Woe to you, self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to, he says, woe to you, meaning that he's already mourning your death. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, you hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside but inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. This is what it's like spiritually when we're just walking after the pattern of this world. This right here is what living in chaos does to you. This is what it does to me when we live in chaos, when we live in sin. We might look good on the outside. We might have all of the money, all of the fame, all the stuff Solomon had, he looked real good on the outside. But what he says is that it is empty. There's nothing on the inside. When everything looks put together, know this, it's probably not put together. 
We try so hard to look really good on the outside when on the inside, the part that really needs the attention is like that. Full of dead men's bones. Unfortunately, this world is chaotic without God. There's nothing stable. There's nothing in order. You might have a job and lose it. You might have health and lose it. There's nothing in this life that you can predict. It's all chaotic. Without God, there is no true order. So we talked a lot about chaos, but let me show you something about God. God is a God of order. The definition of order is a condition of methodical or prescribed arrangement among component parts such that proper functioning or appearance is achieved. You just look at the Bible at a thousand yard view and you tell me that God is not orderly. And then you start to study all of the prophecies, all of the things that he set into place that span so many hundreds or thousands of years and they all come to pass in their time. We see in Scripture in the New Testament, it talks about how God already had the plan of redemption before he even created the world. That Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Or in other words, Jesus was already crucified before God built the foundation for earth. He already had that in mind. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. This is an interesting thing about God. that He's orderly. Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. In the Amplified it says this. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created by... Uh, created uh, forming from nothing the heavens and the earth. So we see first off, there is nothing there. And then God creates something. But the thing that he created wasn't the final product. When you get to verse 2, you tell me if this is a world you want to live in. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says this. The earth was formless without form uh, and void or a waste and emptiness and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The spirit of God was moving or hovering or brooding over the face of the waters. That seems like a pretty wild world to live in. That that's even described as being void and, and without form and wasn't shapen. See, this is the interesting thing about God is that he is orderly, but also He's orderly even in the midst of chaos. So he created this. He created a wild world at first to show us that he pulls order out of chaos and that he has authority over chaos because he even created that. He created a chaotic world from everything you look at. It's chaos. It was void, nothing. It wasn't even formed. And yet he pulls order out of that. Look at this. The earth was without form and void. It was empty. That word abyss or deep is uh, uh, in Hebrew. It's tehom, which is the abyss, the big raging ocean. That's what was there. It was so deep. It was unfathomable. It was raging. It wasn't like still waters. This was like this chaotic event was happening on the earth. And now all of a sudden in the midst of that, God is there. His spirit is hovering over the abyss, planning what he was going to do next. And then you read through the creation, uh, the creation event, and you see God physically speaking uh, land up out of the abyss and physically speaking rivers and physically speaking uh, living things and creatures out of that chaotic world. It's amazing, this principle that God can even create chaos in our life at times so he can pull order out of it to show us that he is all-powerful and that he has authority even when life is raging, he can pull order out of it. Man, God is so good. We got other examples of God being orderly too. I mean, I've been reading a lot in Exodus. That's why I thought about that this morning. Exodus chapter 20, chapters 20 through 23, God gives the law. What is the law? It's order. It's structure. Exodus chapter 25 through 30, God gives specific instruction on how to build the tabernacle. Five chapters worth. Five chapters worth on how to even make the rings that go on the curtains in the tabernacle. 
Job chapter 25, verse 2, Job recognized God's orderliness. He said, dominion and awe belong to God. He establishes peace. I want you to remember that word. Peace and order in his high places. God establishes peace and order. Peace and order are linked in Scripture. God is order. He is the source of all morality and truth. He is the source of stability and provision. To be in chaos is to be without God. So here's the cure to chaos. We talked a lot about chaos, talked a lot about order. But now the question really is, well, if we live in a chaotic world, what on earth can we do about it? There is a cure to this. And the cure comes in the form of a parable that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 26, uh, after Jesus gives a huge dissertation and teaches and teaches and teaches, he finishes up his teaching with this parable. And this is how it goes. There are two men that build a house. One man builds it on the rock. Another man builds it on the sand. The rain, the actually in the Amplified, it talks about the torrential rain, the storms that beat, along, that, beat that house, both houses, senseless. But what's interesting is that one house stood, the other house didn't. What this shows us is that life, although it's chaotic, bad things happen to everybody. That's what, at least to me, the storms, the wind, the, everything that beat on those houses, that's the chaotic life that we live in. But now, there is something that we can do so that the house doesn't crumble under the weight of all that chaos and unpredictability. And this is the cure. What's interesting is that the stone foundation will last through all the trouble and the sand foundation will be destroyed under the trouble. And this, I'll, I'll read to you this parable real quick. This is specifically in Jesus' words in the Amplified. So everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man, a far-sighted, practical, and sensible man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods and torrents came and the winds blew and slammed against the house, yet it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish or a stupid man. That's specifically how it's translated. A stupid man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods and torrents came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great and complete was its fall. Part of it didn't fall. It was completely destroyed. That's what Jesus said. Complete was its fall. There was nothing left. So there are two cures to chaos, two, and these are very practical, and I want to just give them to you, okay? Number one, build a relationship routine with God. Build a relationship routine with God. Routine is very important because that creates order in the midst of chaos. When you have a predictable process that you do every day at the exact same time, it creates order in your life. One of my mentors in life and a very close friend, he used to always tell me, control what you can control and don't worry about the rest. That's some great advice. And actually, Jesus tells us to do that. Control what you can control. Obey the way you know how to obey and don't worry about the rest. Because if we focus on all the stuff we can't control, that's what creates anxiety. That's what creates depression. That's what breeds a philosophy of nihilism in our life. Do you all know what nihilism is? Sorry, it's a big word. I've been reading a lot of books. <laughs> nihilism is the philosophy, the complete rejection of morality and truth, the complete rejection of meaning in life. That's what nihilism is. But if you focus on what you can control, and this is what Jesus was getting at, is that we're all building a house. All of us are building something. But what are you building on? That's what you can control. You can control the foundation you build your house on. So control what you can control. Build a relationship routine with God. When you do that, you are like the wise man who is building on the rock. So that when chaos does come your way, because it will, when chaos does come your way, the house will still be standing. So build a routine. Here's the practical thing. Set a specific time and build a habit around prayer. 
just set a time and do it every day around Bible reading every day. If your thing is to get up in the morning at 530 and you're going to pray and read your Bible until 630 and then get ready for the day, do that every single day. Because when you do that, you are building on a strong foundation and you are creating order in your life. And that order helps sustain us when we do go through chaos. We can't control a whole lot in our life, but we sure can control the routines we build in our life. And this is something, another thing that uh, Jordan B. Peterson says is that his number one recommendation to people who are dealing with anxiety and depression is to set a morning routine and stick to it every single day so that there's at least something predictable in your life. Even if your life is completely unstable and you don't even know where you're sleeping tomorrow, at least you can count on that order in your life. And that puts you on the right track of building a successful life. And Jesus tells us the exact same thing. Even if you don't know what's going to happen, even if you don't know when the storm is going to come, just build your life on the rock. Incorporate prayer, Bible, and fasting in your life. Obey the word of God and learn to listen to the voice of God. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 in the New King James says this. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Being vigilant, meaning don't miss a watch in your prayer life. Be vigilant, always watching, always incorporating prayer in everything that we do. That's number one. So build a relationship routine with God. That puts some order in our life. But then number two, and this one's the hardest one, give it to God and let go. Give it to God and let go of it, especially when it's something you cannot control. Give it to God and let go of it. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 say this in the Amplified. Do not be anxious or worried about anything, but in everything, every circumstance and situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, continue to make your specific requests known to God and the peace of God, that peace which reassures the heart, that peace which transcends all understanding, that peace which stands guard over your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus is yours. Oh, I love the way the Amplified <laughs> delivers that scripture. Because this is the thing. I told you to remember that word peace. Peace is God's antidote to chaos. Give it to God and let go of it. We have a, a command here, actually, from Paul. Pinned, pinned through Paul, I should say. But it says, do not be anxious or worried about anything. That's easier said than done. But chaos creates anxiety because you never know what's coming next. You can't make sense of what's going on in life. You're asking why all the time. It creates anxiety. And this is what happens when we focus on the things we can't control. Look at Peter walking on the water. I know we'd, we probably abuse that, <laughs> that example. But look at that, that, that example. He started getting anxious when he saw the storm and everything. But when he was looking at God, everything was fine. He was walking on the water. Even, you know, I don't know if he had like a clear path to Jesus and the water was like fine while he was walking to Jesus or if he was walking on waves. That I don't know. But everything was fine when he was looking at Jesus. It's when he started looking at the stuff he can't control because he couldn't speak peace to the storm. He couldn't tell the waves to quit, quit raging. He couldn't tell the wind to stop. So he was focused on all the things he could not control. And then he started to sink. So be anxious for nothing. That's what King James says. Don't be afraid. Scripture tells us to give it to God and allow his peace to fill us. Allow him to take care of it. There's so many other scriptures that talk about giving our cares to God and, and allow him to take the load. It doesn't mean life's going to be easy. And it doesn't mean that chaos isn't going to happen. But what it does mean is that when we offload that to our creator, he gives us peace. It's an exchange that happens. When we give him our anxieties and troubles, he gives us peace. He fills that empty spot with peace. And that's God's antidote for chaos. We can create some order in our life, but ultimately we need the peace of God. That's why in that order you have to incorporate God. 
Just because you create a routine doesn't mean life is going to be good for you. But when you create a routine that incorporates Bible reading, prayer, fasting, it's through those things that God starts to work on our heart. And it's through those things where he starts to dispense peace when we're going through trouble. And when you have the peace of God, it don't matter where you walk. It don't matter where you find yourself. Because when you have the peace of God, you can walk into losing a job, losing a house, losing health. When you have the peace of God, you can walk into those knowing I don't have to be afraid because I've already given it to my creator. I don't have to be, I don't have to worry about this because he's going to take care of me. It's his peace that solves the chaos in our life. But you know, that is easier said than done because too many times we say we, we, sit, we give our cares to God with our mouth, but our heart is still holding on to it. We have to be okay letting go of the things we cannot control. Remember that chaos is a state of utter confusion. That's what we established at the beginning. That's what chaos is. A state of utter confusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 33. In the New King James, it says this. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. There it is again, of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God pulls order out of chaos and gives us peace. When God is involved, confusion is dispelled. And we know that whatever happens, God can make it good. Remember all the way back in creation when God initially spoke the heavens and the earth into existence and the earth was crazy and raging and it was, most people would describe that as being chaotic. When it was like that, God didn't leave it that way. He pulled order from it. And we have promises like Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11. It's amazing because you know what's interesting when you read Ecclesiastes, maybe you all have a different perspective, but when I was reading through it the other day, I read the whole book. And I sat and just reflected, and I was like, man, Solomon is really cynical here. He did not have a great outlook on life. But you know what's amazing is that all through his cynicism, all through the negativity that he talks about, that what life is, it's almost like a switch flips when he starts talking about God. Because he talks about all the work of man's hands and how empty it is and it's worthless and there's nothing you know, I did all this stuff, and it doesn't even matter. Like, that's the language you hear in Ecclesiastes. But then when he starts talking about God, it's, it, something flips in his language. And now, all of a sudden, he is praising God for what he can do. Even when he looks at all the stuff he's done in life, realize it was worthless, he starts praising God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. This is a beautiful scripture. He, this is speaking of God, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Speaking of man, that God has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Solomon's cynicism starts to lift in Ecclesiastes when he talks about God and how when God is involved, the work is beautiful. When man is involved, it's worthless. But when God is involved, the work is beautiful. I think about what Pastor was preaching about the last series that he did about the thorns and how beautiful the rose was and how God is the one who brings the beauty out of that. So when God does a work, he makes everything beautiful in its time. Everything that God makes becomes beautiful. And he recognizes that God, even in creating humanity, I love this line where he says, also he has put eternity in their hearts. That there is something in the human heart, some spark of the divine, because God was the one who created humanity, and he breathed life into humanity. So there is something uh, that borderlines divinity in humanity. There, there's something spiritual in every human being, and that's what Solomon's getting at, in that line at least, that he's saying that God makes everything beautiful. And when he created man, he put a little bit of eternity into every human heart. Not enough to understand the work that God does. That's what he's saying. Not enough to understand what God does, but enough to create a longing for their creator. 
enough to create something. That's why humans seek for order, I believe. That's why humans seek for order, even though we're in a world of chaos. It's that eternity, that little bit of the spirit that is seeking for something that can change their life, seeking for something that can create order from the chaos that's in life. Just that little bit of eternity, just that little bit. I believe, drives people to seek for something that can fill it. Unfortunately, many people don't know how to fix that. But this is what Jesus said, John 4 and 14. We can all stand because this is where I'm going to end. John 4 and 14 in the Amplified. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst again. But the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, satisfying his thirst for God welling up continually, flowing, bubbling within him to eternal life. I believe that the thing that Solomon recognized there is that people are longing. People are longing for order and for peace because this world can't give those two things. This world can't. It's full of unpredictabilities. It's full of problems. It's full of issues. But God can pull order out of chaos and he replaces anxiety with peace. And that little bit of e eternity, that little bit of spiritual something that's in every human heart, even if they're, you know, to our eyes, so far away from God, everybody's got that little something that's just gnawing on the inside. Like, this life that I have is not the one that I want. There's got to be something more. Like, some of the most common existential questions that people ask is, what is the meaning of life? Is this all there is? Why are we here? And those questions, I believe, this is my belief, no scripture to back this up, but I believe humans ask those questions because it's the spirit longing for the creator. It's the spirit longing for that order out of chaos. It's the spirit longing for that peace. So humans, we ask ourselves those questions all the time. And you know what's amazing is that Jesus said in John chapter 4, if you just take a drink of what Jesus is offering, it will satisfy the thirst that's in your spirit. It will not only satisfy it, but give you water for the rest of your life. And not only do that, but get you, give you enough water for everyone around you too. It's the source that everybody is looking for. It's the solution to chaos. And our God is so good that when we serve him, he can even take those chaotic events and turn them into something good. Romans chapter 8, 28, we love this scripture. It's a great promise. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work good. It doesn't mean the situation is good, but it means no matter what you're going through in life, God can make it good. Just like he made the raging abyss in Genesis 1-2 good. And he even said it. When, at, this is amazing to me. He even said that it's good when he's creating and when he created land and when he spoke all of this stuff, he would take a pause and look at it. That's good. That's good. And then we see a promise right here with that same language that God can work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That he can take chaos and broken pieces, put it back together, and he can take a step back and look. That's good. That's good. Man, the God we serve, the best way that I can think to describe him is good. He's good. Everything he is is good. And I just want to I guess issue a challenge or open the altar or whatever. They always say you got to have a call to action when you preach. But I, I guess I just want to encourage somebody. If you feel like your world is falling apart, it probably is. I know that's, that's not the encouragement. But it probably is. The encouragement is there is a cure to that chaos. And the cure is not a what. It's not what kind of medication you can take or what kind of 
you know, self-help book you can read or what kind of program you can get on. Although, in many cases, those things do help. But the actual cure is not a what, it is a who. The cure is Jesus. The cure is Jesus. All we got to do is take a drink and he'll satisfy the thirst and he can put broken pieces back together. Let's all come forward. If you're going through something in life right now that feels chaotic and unpredictable and you're asking, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to so-and-so? What is going on? Life is hard sometimes. But the answer to that, take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. Build a relationship routine with Him and then give Him your concerns and your anxieties and your depressions and whatever it is. Give it to Him and let go. Let go of it. Bury it. Put it at the cross. Let go of it. You know, too many times we're really good grave robbers. When stuff dies in our past and God puts it under the blood, we tend to go back and pull it back and say, well, what about this? No, leave it there. Give it to God and let go of it. Because he can take care of it way better than any of us can. Thank you, Jesus.